Good morning. Your reading this morning comes from James 5, verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Thanks, Heather. Before we get to the sermon, I know what you're, you're all thinking. Those were two really neat new songs. I, I wish I had the opportunity to maybe hear them before and learn them a little better so I could sing them with more earnestness. Well, you're in luck. Uh, every every week, uh, if you go to gracewyoming.com and at the top left-ish is a, is a tab that says this week. And as soon as news and notes comes out, the this week deal is updated. And on it is the order of service, including the songs. And with that, uh, our, our our excellent worship leader, uh, what do you call it, links each of those to to a YouTube, uh, the, the style we're going to sing it in. So different songs have different styles sometimes. And so Matt links it to the style we'll be singing it in. So if you're not in the habit of doing that already, Get in the habit of doing that. And on top of that, praying through the passage and praying for whoever's preaching that week, which I guess is usually me, so pray for me. Um, but but familiarize yourself with the order. Help your kids get familiar with it and really prepare your hearts to praise the Lord. It's way easier to worship God with a song you're more familiar with. At least it is for me and I think for most people. So... Your prayers have been heard. There is a this week section at gracewyoming.com. You should go to it. All right. We saw last week in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, that there were rich people causing a ruckus. Uh, They were wreaking havoc within and around the, the churches that James was overseeing, in particular among poorer people within the the churches. They were hoarding things, so they had stuff that was they didn't need, they weren't sharing, and it was rotting. They had so much of it, it was just sitting there. They were hoarding things that people in the churches needed. They were living self-indulgent lifestyles. Top of all that, they were exploiting the poor. They were perverting justice. All of these things made following Jesus for a good chunk of the church more difficult than it already was. In those few verses from, again, this is last week's sermon, 1 through 6, James spoke directly to those rich, wicked people who were sinning so egregiously. Mostly, he warned them of the horrific fate that awaited them if they refused to repent. Well, that was last week. Same situation, uh, different group of people. In our passage for this morning, James addressed the poorer people who were the victims of these injustices and this wickedness. Now, here's here's the thing. So you gotta 
you got a picture. These wealthy people with power and authority and, and influence are using their, their money and their power and their authority and influence to make life even harder in some ways to become powerful and rich on the backs of exploiting a group of people within James's churches. So you got to picture this. It's a really, it's, it's bad. Like to, to be one of the poor people experiencing this, this was a really, this wasn't good to be a Christian at that time was hard. And to have this on top of that was harder still. And so what I want you to draw to mind certainly is that, but also I want you to draw to mind someone in your life who has made your life harder. They've acted in a way that was clearly sinful and it made your life hard, painful, difficult. And so last week we saw that James warned severely the people who were doing the wickedness. This week he's going to address the victims of the wickedness. And I want you to ask yourself, forget what Heather just said or what she read this week, what do you think James would say? Or or maybe the question that I'm I'm getting at is how do you how do you function? <laughs> what what does your life look like when you are the victim of that thing? As if James were to have said that, it's a confusing way to say it. But let me ask you a few things. Do you imagine mainly that James would offer compassion and comfort? And by that question, I mean is that mainly what you wish God's word were to say to you when you're the victim of someone else's sin? Do you think James would mainly say words of compassion and comfort? Do you think he'd mainly say, if he didn't already know, words on how to get out from under that oppression, on how to have that wickedness, the, the, the effect of that wickedness stop in your life? Or how about words to call down divine curses on the rich, to, to really get them back for all the pain they've caused you, or Maybe words on how to properly rebuke or even discipline them. The Bible does talk about that. Is that sort of what you would expect James to say or or what you want him to say as you contemplate his advice to you under the inspiration of God for the people who are making your life harder? We kind of got to get our heads around that to really appreciate this. But as a matter of practice, those things seem to be where our minds most go when we are or imagine victims of the sins of others. We primarily want compassion, relief, and vindication. That's my experience as you share with me and sit across from me as your pastor and as I experience that myself. Compassion, relief, and vindication. But the question is, what does James actually say? The Bible says more than what James says here about this kind of thing, but it doesn't say less. James' main and repeated charge was none of those things. Instead, it's this, be patient. The first thing he charges his readers with in the midst of probably worse worse injustice than most of us will experience is be patient. Not words of compassion, not words of relief, not words of vindication, at least not relief from the circumstances but be patient. And then the rest of the passage is, what does that look like? What does it look like to be patient in the midst of other people doing wicked things against you? And how do you get there? Because that doesn't sound easy. And it isn't in one sense. 
So the rest of the passage describes what patience and persecution looks like and where it comes from. And then I'm going to wrap up the sermon really briefly by saying that's pretty counterintuitive, but it's even more than you realize. I'll end it that way. So let's pray. Let's let's look at let's pray. Look at the text and consider how to be patient when life is hard. God, thank you for this passage. Uh, it's another one. I prayed in the prayer room this morning. It's another one where I just can't really imagine that people who are this just this this isn't a normal thing to think about. At least not for me. I think about how to change my circumstances more, far more than how to be patient in them. When life is hard, I, I want to get out of it. And I want it to become easier, not necessarily be patient in it. And so this is another example of how your word tells us what we need better than what we think we need. <laughs> better than your word describes what we need, even when we don't feel it. It tells us what we need. And tells us what to do about our needs. So we're thankful for that. Thankful for the song we just sang and its acknowledgement that your word is unique. It alone is able to equip us for every good work. It alone is able to tell us what good works are and how to do them. And your word alone is able to explain to us how we ought to see hard things and hard people in our lives. We have our own sense of things and others bring some measure of common sense to us, but your word alone is sure and certain. And upon your word alone can we build our lives in safe and godly ways. So may we do that this morning. Whatever, However else we've been handling people acting wickedly towards us, may we learn afresh this morning how you mean us to and to see that it is always better than whatever we have devised. We love you and we thank you. Make us more patient this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see it a number of times. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Again, a little bit later, see how the farmer waits. Be patient, being patient. And again, a little later, you also be patient. A little later, as an example of suffering and patience. And in addition to that specific word that James uses a number of times, he uses at least another one more word that means basically the same thing. Consider those who remain steadfast. And again, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. It's, it's not the same, but it's similar to the patience he calls us to. And here it is. The main point is that the main charge of James when others are making your life difficult or more specifically, the main point is that the main charge of James to those suffering at the hands of the wicked rich was to be patient. Now, I've alluded to this, but I want to make something plain. The word translated patient in this passage has a fairly specific meaning. It means long-tempered, which you probably already imagined, or slow to lose your temper, but it means something more specific still. It particularly means being long-tempered towards others. So there's a more general or generic term that means being patient under whatever hard circumstances come your way, people or, or things. But this word in particular points to being patient with people, to being patient towards others who are making our lives challenging. By using this particular word, 
James charged his readers who were suffering under the oppression and exploitation of the rich to determine to faithfully endure this mistreatment. What should you do when other people make your life hard? Stop. Think about that for a minute. It's not, it's not hypothetical. This is real. This is the word of God to all of us. What should you do when other people make your life hard? Whatever else may follow, whatever else God's word says about this, and again, it does say more, you must begin with patience. It sounds hard. (laughs) It gets harder. What's more, James's command was not to be patient for a few days. Just just hang in there, just a few more days, or even a few more weeks, or even a few more years. That's not what he said, because, you know, we we could do that. Maybe, at least a little bit easier than what he's about to say. And it wasn't to be patient in the knowledge that God will end this hardship. He will end it in this life. Be, be patient for a little bit longer because it, there is a, a pro, he did, he's not saying this, because there's a promise that God will, will end the wickedness of these rich people soon. That's not what he says. That's, that'd be, it'd be hard, but it'd be a little bit easier than what he does say. He commanded them, rather, to be patient in the hardships caused by others, and especially especially the current bout caused by the rich among them, until the coming of the Lord. A few verses later, he adds, For the coming of the Lord is at hand, and behold, the judge is standing at the door. But that did not mean necessarily, obviously, that it would be soon, only that it was certain. Grace, hear this. The Bible promises repeatedly that in Christ, your every hardship will be taken away in heaven. But there's not a single promise that any of your hardships will be taken away in this life. So be patient. In other words, and once again, the charge was basically this. This is is my rewording of what James is saying. A life lived by faith in Jesus will be filled with hardships caused by others within and without of the church. So get this, settle on this, Grace. A life lived by faith in Jesus will be filled with hardships, and at times, hardships caused by other people, within and without of the church. As they come, they will come, honoring God in that begins with being patient, faithfully enduring the conflicts in the knowledge that they may not end in this life. And this is to be your disposition you're following Jesus until Jesus comes back. That's James's basic message. It sounds awfully counterintuitive. We want to get out from the hardships. What's intuitive to us is a recipe for ending the hardships. It sounds counterintuitive and exceptionally difficult. I know that some of you have and are suffering significantly at the hands of others. I'm not naive to that. The rest of you will <laughs> at some point. If you haven't yet, you will at some point if you're following Christ. And as they come, grace, I hope you remember this. I hope you're imagining even now some of the mistreatment you're enduring or otherwise imagining yourself in the place of James's readers. And you have to be wondering, what does that look like? Okay, I, I basically get the idea of patience, but what does this kind of patience look like? And maybe even more emphatically, how do I get it? Because I don't feel like I have it. 
God is kind to give it, give us a bit of both through James. That's where we'll go now. What it'll look like and where do we get it? Cause we, we need it. So what kind of patience or what does this kind of patience in the face of hardship caused by others look like? And it, it could be huge, like what James's readers are experiencing or parents. Maybe your kids are just relentless. They just won't stop with their questions or maybe uh, kids, it's your brother or sister just keeps hitting you in, in the head with that plastic bat or whatever it may be. It could be big, could be small, but, but what does patience in the midst of that look like in Christ? James mentions three specific things. Number one, it means establishing your heart. I'll tell you what that means. It means refusing to grumble. I'll tell you what that means. And it remembers God's faithfulness to those who suffer faithfully. Let's look at each of those. Number one, it is marked by an established heart. In James chapter 5, verse 8, he wrote, establish your hearts. Those of you who are suffering at the hands of others, establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. A life of patience looks like, or it is one with a heart that is determined to trust in the Lord no matter what. The psalmist captures this well in Psalm 112. 112.6-8 says this, For the righteous will never be moved. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Again, grace, hardship will come, oftentimes at the hands of others. Responding to it with the kind of patience that James calls us to, commands us to, means doing so with a spirit-given resolve and determination, an established heart, to trust in the Lord's good purposes and final victory over all of it, every time, always. Patience comes naturally when we're sure God is using our hardship for greater glory. So hardship comes upon you at the hands of someone else. Be patient. What does patience look like? It means determining in that moment to trust not in your own sense of things, but in the promises of God. And those are secure. He is a strong tower like we saw in our fighter verse for this week. That's what it looks like first. Second, it refuses to grumble against those who share in your suffering. So look at verse 9. Do not grumble. Interestingly, and I'm going to talk about this for a minute. It doesn't say do not grumble against the rich. It says do not grumble against one another, brothers. So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It's an interesting clause. When others over us, the rich people have power over these poor people. When others over us, that is people that we can't necessarily stop or do something about directly. When others over us cause us problems, our tendency is often to grumble, but not so much to them because we know we can't necessarily do anything about it, but against others. Maybe even others in the same situation as us. Your boss gives you a hard time. You can't do much about it. And so you're a little grumpier towards your kids. Your friend acts hurtfully towards you. For whatever reason, you don't feel like you can respond back to them. So you take it out on your husband or your wife. Your older brother picks on you. It's always the older brother. I know that, uh, kids. The older brother picks on you. So you take it out on your younger brother. The poor clearly felt powerless against the rich, so they seem to have been tempted to take it out on or grumble against each other. 
James made it clear that this kind of patient, that the kind of patience that pleases God doesn't do that. It does not turn frustration at someone we can't touch into trash talking someone we can. Now here's the key to, to this is he gave the rationale for it also. And we, we really need to hear this. We need to hear all this, of course. It's the word of God, but we really need to hear this in our current day. He said, so that, why? Why don't you grumble against one another? Why does that, why does patience look like that? He says, so that you will not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Well, what does that mean? It means that just because the poor were victims of the rich, and they were, it didn't mean that they were free to respond however they felt. As real as the sins being committed against them were, it did not give them a blank check to respond in whatever way they felt. One person, Grace, one person's sin against you does not in any way justify a sinful response on your part, to that, back to them or to anyone else. Though it was tragic that the poor believers were being subjected to the exploitation and injustices of the rich, they were still responsible to act in godly ways. If they did not, this is James's point, if they did not, if they responded in kind or in sin, either towards the rich or someone else like them, they would be subject to the same kind of judgment that the rich were for their sin. The rich people's actions might have tempted them towards sin, but certainly did not excuse it. And I think this is especially important right now. Our world is really confused about this in this current cultural moment, Grace. Functionally, we're surrounded by people in and out of the church who believe that morality is a sliding scale wherein the more you've been sinned against, the less you're responsible for your own sin. And it might not even be sin anymore as long as you've been sufficiently sinned against. That kind of moral code is not only false, James says it's it's deadly. If we do not acknowledge our sin before God, we cannot receive forgiveness from it. If we deny it or excuse it, it means we're not trusting in Christ for it. When others sin against you and make your life hard, always respond in patience. And responding in patience means not grumbling against others. Third, what does it look like? It remembers God's faithfulness. First, you guard up your hearts or or, or strengthen your hearts. Second, you refuse to grumble. And third, you remember God's faithfulness to those who suffer faithfully. Look at verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. We're going to consider this more in just a minute because it's also a source of patience. But here I want you to consider the fact that when others make your life harder, a patient, godly response draws to mind the faithfulness of God to the faithful. You remember this, that insofar as I continue to hold fast to Christ and he holds fast to me, there's blessing. Rather than focusing on their mistreatment or hardship, James charged his readers to consider God's perfect eternal blessing to those who persevere in obedience through the mistreatment. It's a big deal, Grace. This is how the sermon ends, but I want to I want to tease you a little bit with it right now. Almost a hundred percent of the time, when someone acts wrongly toward us, think about this. This doesn't work if you don't try to think of someone mistreating you. Almost 100% of the time, when someone acts wrongly towards us, or at least we believe they did, 
Our flesh wells up, and we want to focus on the pain, the escape, or the revenge. Almost 100% of the time, that's our, that's our impulse. We want to focus on the pain of what they did, the escape, the way out of it, or revenge for it. James charged his readers to instead be patient and focus on God's presence to bless in it. That is not to say that this kind of patience is indifferent to the sins of others. It is not to say that this kind of patience is indifferent to the pain that it causes us, only that our hearts must always, for an honor God, our hearts must always go and stay vertical before we'll ever be able to properly respond horizontally. And that requires patience. The gospel changes everything, Grace. All right. So that's what it looks like. I told you James's command is to be patient until the Lord returns because in this life, hardship may never end at the hands of others. And then I told you what it looks like. And if it sounded hard when I told you how long it's meant to last, it probably sounds harder still now that I've told you what it looks like. And so I, I hope, and especially those of you currently experiencing mistreatment, are wondering eagerly, well, where does this come from? I don't feel it right now. It doesn't seem like I, I have it. I, sounds good. I'd like that. I can see how that would be honoring to God, but I feel weak. I don't, I don't feel like I have this. Where do we get it? Again, if that's where the patience that James calls for, if that's what it looks like, we're right to ask where it comes from. How do we get it? How do we go from reacting in our flesh to being mistreated to responding in patience? Specifically, how could James's readers who were being so oppressed and hurt do so? Although James doesn't say it directly, we know that this kind of patience ultimately comes as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22, I imagine many of you are familiar with it, but the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience. It's something the Holy Spirit needs to produce in us. Ultimately, when we come to faith in Christ, the Spirit comes to live in us, and patience is a fruit that the Spirit gradually and increasingly bears in us. Nothing we can do on our own is able to muster up the kind of patience that pleases God in any situation, much less one of this type or this level of hardship. And yet, with the Spirit's help, James shared with his readers five brief means of patience-building grace. So if you're a Christian, the Spirit lives in you and is already working patience out in you, James gives you five ways to work with the Spirit, to not quench the Spirit, to build this kind of patience grace. You ready? The farmers? The farmers. Gotta love the farmers. The farmers, the return of Jesus, the prophets, Job, and the Lord. How about those farmers? The kind of patience James calls for comes from looking to the farmers. Look at verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. The kind of patience we need when others make life hard comes ultimately from the Spirit and through the Spirit by looking at the farmers and remembering the manner in which God designed food to grow. 
The farmer does the hard work of preparing the field, planting the seeds, watering them, keeping weeds and critters away from them. And all in the faith, and all in faith, that at some point in the future they'll germinate, grow, and bear fruit, things the farmer has absolutely no control over. The farmer is patient because he has faith that something better will come from his patience than anything else. Remember that. In fact, if you have the the sermon outlines from the back, if you flip it over, one of your, uh, what is it called, applications, potential applications for next week is interview a farmer. (laughs) Find a farmer at some point in the next week and interview them. Ask them to tell you about the patience required to be a farmer. And I would love it if one of you would do that and then come back and tell me what they say. But find a farmer and interview them. The farmer does not, the farmer does the hard work and then in faith waits that something better will come. He is humble or she is humble and trusts that while they do their work, there are certain things they need to do. They have a crucial role to play. It is God who makes it work. Where does this kind of patience come from? It comes from remembering the farmer. It's a remarkable picture, Grace, of the ever present partnership between our obedience and God's sovereignty. We work in dependence on and obedience to God and trust that God is sovereignly working on our dependent work. (laughs) It works that way every time. Patience comes from a healthy trust in this relationship, and that comes in part from seeing how farmers do it year after year after year. Second, it comes from looking to the return of Jesus, and this is a big one. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And again in verse 8, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Knowing that Jesus will certainly return, and when he does, that all will be made right, is a powerful, powerful means of patience, grace. We see this clearly in Paul and Peter, as well as James. Paul in Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us at the return of Jesus. And Peter says, In this you now rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, the return, the coming of Jesus Christ. This is patience building in two ways. At least. One, knowledge of the return of Jesus is comforting in its assurance that no injustice, no wickedness, no evilness, no sin against you will ever be undealt with. The wicked rich who are causing so much pain and hardship would either repent and know justice through Christ or face the severe judgment that awaits all the faithful, all the faithless at Jesus' return. This is embedded in verse 9, as we saw earlier. The judge is standing at the door. Second, and far more significantly, the knowledge of the certain return of Jesus builds patience in us in the face of opposition and comfort in the knowledge that at his coming, all suffering of all kinds will end forever for the faithful, and we will know nothing but everlasting joy. What a source of patience it is to know that no matter the degree of suffering caused by others, by enduring it in faith, at the moment of Jesus' return, whenever that is, all injustice will be done away with forever, 
and all hardship will be completely swallowed up in limitless and everlasting glory. That's awesome. That's a source of patience right there. Third, you want that kind of patience? Are, are you enduring mistreatment at the hands of others? Is it causing you pain and difficulty? Be patient. Where does that patience come from? Third, it comes from looking to the prophets. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you are the city that kills the prophets. To be a prophet in Israel was almost always to bring a message of God's judgment to a people who'd grown fat on the blessings of God, delighting and trusting in them rather than the God who made them and gave them. And to bring that kind of message to that kind of people was to experience almost certain and constant persecution and hardship, even for many, most unto death. In reading on this passage this week, I found this summary, and I found it to be really helpful. Beginning with the first prophet and ending with the last before Christ, Moses had to put up with the stiff-necked, rebellious Israelites who left Egypt. David was hunted by Saul as remorselessly as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Elijah faced hostility from the evil king Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. Jeremiah endured opposition throughout his ministry, bringing him such sorrow that he became known as the weeping prophet. Ezekiel endured death endured the death of his wife during the course of his ministry. Daniel was torn from his homeland as a young boy and later thrown into a den of lions because of his faithfulness to God as a prophet. Hosea endured a heartbreaking marriage. Amos faced lies and scorn. And John the Baptist was imprisoned and beheaded for his testimony to God's people about God's truth. Grace, patience, and persecution comes James wrote, from remembering the prophet's faithfulness-driven mistreatment along with the great glory that was theirs through their faithfulness. Read another application for this week is read Hebrews 11 and its description of God's ultimate blessing to the prophets who remain faithful. Fourth, it comes from looking to Job. Verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. By the hand of Satan, by the Lord's permission, as you know, Job's suffering was severe. Inside the very first chapter, within one chapter of the book of Job, Job went from joyful, faithful, and rich to losing his kids, his land, and his health, but getting to keep his cursing wife. And all because Satan recognized his obedience to God. Through it, though, he remained faithful. And one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, in the midst of unimaginable loss, Job declared, though he slay me, that is, though God slay me, yet will I hope in him. In the end, Job's faithfulness was rewarded even in this life. By chapter 42, we read Job that he received back double what he lost in terms of wealth, along with ten faithful kids, in his land. More significantly, the Lord is with him through it all, and centuries of God's people have been encouraged in their suffering by his faithfulness. 
Patience comes from recognizing the absolutely unique suffering of Job at the hands of the greatest enemy, Satan, his faithfulness through it, and God's sovereign hand over all of it to bless Job and the whole world through him. Lastly, fifthly, this kind of patience comes from looking to the Lord. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Grace patience comes from looking to the farmer. It comes from looking to the return of Jesus. It comes from looking to the prophets, James says. It comes from looking to Job. And ultimately, it comes from looking to the patience of God, working out in compassion and mercy. This is the heart of the gospel. Hear this, Grace. Do you want to know this kind of patience in the midst of suffering caused by others? Remember the gospel. We are free, you and I are free to be patient with the wicked and as victims of their wickedness because God is patient with us and ours. And even more than that, in our patience to be compassionate and merciful to those who do us harm because God is compassionate and merciful to us in our sin. Oh, Grace, may we learn the patience of the Lord in order that when others mistreat us, even severely, our hearts and minds would always go first to the undeserved patience that God has for us in our sin. And that, in order that we might respond in such a way that demonstrates that our hope is not in relief from this wickedness in this life, but in God, and that our greatest longing is the fellowship that will be ours forever at the return of Jesus. So that sounds pretty counterintuitive. If you've heard what I've said, this is not what we normally see. In James 5, 1 through 11, he addresses a serious problem that had risen among his readers. Beyond what we've already covered, though, there is in it an even deeper blessing in really recognizing the different approach James took in addressing the two parties. He had an address directly to the rich sinners and to the poor victims. In seeing the difference in the addresses is a deeper blessing still. Just quick recap. Last week, 5, 1 through 6, directly addressed the rich people. He named their sin. He told them what was at stake if they refused to repent and told them what to do in response. We just saw 7 through 11. He addressed those directly and significantly harmed by the sins of the rich, charged them to be patient as they waited for the return of Jesus, told them what it looks like to do so and where that kind of patience comes from. That's where we've gone. As simple as it is, here's the key. Here's the deeper blessing still. And I hope you don't miss this. This is the consistent message of the New Testament. I teased this before. Here it is as plainly as I know how to say it. James, picture yourself suffering. Picture yourself wanting to know the will of God, suffering at the hands of someone else. How do I respond in a godly way? James didn't say a word to the poor about the rich. You notice that? Nothing in his words to the suffering saints called them to change or even address the sins of those who are causing their suffering. As I mentioned in the introduction, we might expect James to call the rich to repent and the poor to call the rich to repent. Or for him to call the rich to repent and the poor to stand firm or even discipline the rich. In my experience, people who find themselves in situations similar to the oppressed poor in our passage, people who are on the losing end of some type of injustice, 
almost always expect the godly solution to involve working in some way to end the injustice. At times, in the Bible, that's true. It is the case. Matthew 18 is a great example of that. However, if you even briefly skim through the New Testament, it reveals that's never the first charge. The first charge, rather, Grace, hear this, as is the case in our passage, is to expect further injustices, not less, to remember the promises of God in them and through them and for them, and to focus on acting faithfully to God's promise in a way that demonstrates the power of the gospel. It is always most pleasing to God when our first response to the hardship caused by others begins with accepting the facts that our circumstances might not change in this life and that standing on the promises of God is a sufficient and safe place regardless. In other words, while we might expect James and the rest of the New Testament authors to give us first guidance on how to change our unfavorable circumstances, Their main and consistent charge is always first how to adjust our own hearts to hope fully in God in those circumstances, whether they change or not. Here's my conclusion. However else you might reply to someone acting unjust, acting in unjust or otherwise ungodly ways towards you, it has to begin here with gospel rooted patience. Gospel-rooted patience looks like an established heart, a refusal to grumble, and a constant remembrance of God's faithfulness to his faithful people through every mistreatment. And that kind of patience comes from looking to the farmer, the return of Jesus, the prophets, Job, and to the Lord himself. Again, then, may we be a church that is marked by this kind of approach to the hardships inflicted upon us by others, And may we do so because we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And in light of the fact that when we do, every time you do this, Grace, every time someone mistreats you sinfully and you respond in this way, every time we do, we provide the watching world and especially the sinner with a living picture of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what what we're called to do, Grace. May we do so today more than ever.